Amen. So I probably ought to start this off by saying my name is Chuck. I have a new life in Christ, and I think I struggle with control because when technology doesn't work, it drives me nuts, right? So I'm sitting here, and then I get these nice little reminders. It's not about the technology. It's about the gospel. And it's always about the gospel and about what the Word actually does. And so this morning, as we kind of continue in our series that we are calling Reinvent, I want to go back to the values we started with this last week. We, we talked about these signs last week as these signs represent the values that we have as a church. The first one is come as you are. And what we basically said is, look, it's not just about dress, though we certainly want you to come as you are. We made the statement, please come clothed. We think that's important, right? But we want you to come with a heart and an attitude wherever you happen to be on your journey. You are welcome here. That this is a place where you can safely check out what God is saying and what God is doing and and really check out his claims and his promises in a safe environment. So you can come as you are. The second sign is kind of tied to the first one. And it says simply, you matter to God. So often in our world, we forget that the God of the universe loves us, loves us, loves us. That we can't do any more to make him love us more. And we can't do anything that's going to make him love us less. We matter. And God demonstrates the fact through the sending of his son just how much we matter to him. The third sign we basically talked about was is about children. Slow children at play says that children have always mattered in this church. Whether it's our children's ministry, our youth ministry, or what happens in CDC every day of the week. We are a church that demonstrates that children matter, but there's more to it than that. We are supposed to have the attitude of a little child where we don't take ourselves so seriously. Where we are innocent and also have the joy of the Lord because that's what little children have. If you will stick around at the end of this service, you're going to see a bunch of little children on this stage. And they're going to be playing. And here's the thing I've told their parents. I hope when they graduate from high school... And they're here for that senior Sunday and they're presented kind of like we do. That they'll remember from the time they were babies. Children are welcome here. And what we see in them is something we ought to emulate in us. And here's the last sign. And I think it kind of encompasses it all. Grace happens here. That we are a people of grace, that we embody grace, that we have received grace, that God's grace has so touched our lives that we are changed forever. And we have that opportunity to demonstrate that same kind of grace to other people that come in contact with us, that grace really does matter. Now, I have to tell you, You look at these signs and you see, you know, those are values that would be attractive to the world. Would we agree with that? 
Those are the kind of values that the world is looking for. But if you ask the world how they view church and Christians, there's a book that is called Unchristian. And it talks about the world's view of, and and these are folks that are outsiders. They are not folks that are inside our little group. They are outsiders. And if you look at what it says, it says that Christians are judgmental and that Christians are condemning. And we have to be honest that at least in a good section of our past, at times, we have been that. In fact, there might be another sign that we might want to put up that at least kind of emulates at least some of our past. And it is, welcome to the church of we're right and you're wrong. And the laughter becomes nervous at that moment, right? Because the truth of the matter is, when our fellowship in the 1960s was the fastest growing religious group in America, it was because we had a honed message. And that message is, we got it. We got it. We got it completely figured out. But removing ourselves from the world was never the goal. And you know what ended up happening? That attitude kind of caused us to withdraw from the world. And you saw things like this this multitude of Christian schools pop up. And we started seeing Christian bookstores. And we started having radio stations playing Christian music. Because Christians withdrew from the world. And they kind of came into their own little huddle that was there. So before I misunderstood, I believe in Christian schools. I'm a product of one. Elementary school, junior high, high school, and college. I think that those moments shaped me and formed me. But what I am saying to us is we got very, very comfortable in creating our own culture, our own environment. And what we became very uncomfortable doing was going into the world and making disciples. Remember Jesus's last words, Mark 16, 15, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Acts 1.8. Listen to these words. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And if you think about how the early church grew, think about that church in Jerusalem. Because they started right where they were. And what those Christians tried to do was they went into the community and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your job is to be salt and light. You step into the world and you make the world better. By your action, by your attitude, by your words. That as we go into the world, as we continue to go into the world, we make the world a better place. And so I want to ask us a question that I think we need to answer. And the question is simply this. What is the purpose of the church? 
And if I asked that question in such a way that we could have time to discuss it, I would get a lot of different responses. People have a lot of different views on what the church ought to be and what the church ought to do. But this morning, I want to talk about how we actually connect with the world. And according to Jesus, see, I think you pay attention to people's last words. Go unto, into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the earth. See, I think Peter Drucker had it right. He said, every day we ask ourselves two questions. What business are we in and how's business? And I think the church's one job is to be in the witness business. By going into the world as salt and light, as we go, making the world a better place, demonstrating what a life in Christ looks like, not only by what we say, but what, by how we live and how intentional our relationships are with other people to make their world Better, I think the people of the world are more ready to receive the good news than we are to give it. And that needs to change. So there is this story, this not really a story, but there is this, um, th this whole little description in Matthew chapter 9. And it's Jesus talking, and he's talking about how the world, how we ought to see the world and how he sees the world. I'd like you to turn there. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them. And I want you to hear why he is compassionate toward them. He said, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. What business are we in? We are in the witness and connecting business. So let me ask question number two. How's business? How well do we connect with other people? See, I think a witness is not something you do because Jesus says in Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses. And Jesus' ministry was a demonstration of what it meant to be a witness of kingdom life. Now, he got a lot of heat for the people that he hung around with. In fact, that seemed to be a common thread that would keep 
coming back. If you look at Luke chapter 15, I'm going to go on and ask you to turn there because we're going to spend the rest of our time primarily looking at three stories in Luke 15. But I want to introduce that with those first two verses because I want to set up how people viewed what Jesus was really about. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were gathering all around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Have you ever heard somebody mutter? Have you ever heard that just kind of grousing under the breath, passive, aggressive, kind of sarcastic little moment that comes along? This man eats with sinners and tax collectors. What's wrong with him? What's going on with this guy? And instead of responding to this judgmental moment traditionally, Jesus decides to tell three different stories. But all three stories have a common theme. And the common theme looks like this. Something is lost... Lost is not good. And when you find that thing that has been lost, there is great rejoicing. I get to see it when my wife finds her cell phone. There is great rejoicing that comes when you find that thing that's lost. And I will pay for that comment, just so you know. That's what it looks like when things are lost and then they are found. So Jesus tells three stories. The first one goes like this. There's a woman who has a coin. The coin has great value to her and she's lost it. And she can't find it anywhere, so she does something extreme. She goes and she sweeps her house out completely, looks for the coin, finds the coin, and when she finds it, there is great rejoicing. Story number two. There was a sheep that was tied into a herd. There are a hundred of them there. And this sheep wanders off by itself. And the shepherd, knowing there was danger to the sheep, leaves the 99, goes after the one, finds the one, brings it back into the fold, and everything is good. And then there's story number three. Story number three is about a boy who walks up to his dad and says to him, well, he might as well have said this, I wish you were dead. What he says to him is, give me, your, give me my inheritance. And so the father reluctantly does that very thing. Gives him his inheritance. He goes to a far country. He lives the life that he wants to live. Life on his terms. Without any boundaries. Without anything that was going to tell him, this is not what you're supposed to do. And as long as he had money, he had friends. And then the money ran out. And the friends abandoned him. And a Jewish boy found himself in a pigsty feeding pigs. And he has this epiphanal moment where he comes to his senses. And he realizes, you know what? The servants in my father's house have it better than I do. And he starts thinking about what he is going to say. And so he gets up and he says as he walks... Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer willing to, or worthy to be called your son. And he's got this thing that he's rehearsed in his mind all the way through. And the scripture says, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And he hikes up his skirt 
And he begins to run to him and he finds him and he throws himself on this son and he kisses him and he says, quick, bring the robe, bring a ring, bring sandals, kill the fatted calf. We got a party that's going to happen tonight. This son of mine who is lost is now found. This one who is dead is now alive. And so this son comes back home. After living life as a hellion. And how is he received? Not with judgment. Not with condemnation. But with grace and mercy. From a father who's just so glad. His kid comes back home. Now, if that's how the story ends, we all think, we just applaud, right? Great story. But there's another part to it, and it's kind of the punchline in this story. Look at verse 25, Matthew, or Luke 15, excuse me. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's back safe and sound. And the older brother becomes angry and refused to go in. So the father comes outside and pleads with him. But he answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've done exactly what you told me to do. All these years, I have taken care of business right here at home. I have done exactly what you wanted me to do in exactly the way that you wanted me to do it. And you haven't even given me a young goat to go and celebrate with my friends. And look at how he describes him. He doesn't talk about him as his brother. But when this son of yours... Not when my brother, no, no. When this son of yours comes home who has squandered your inheritance with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Meanwhile is not a good word. And that's how Jesus makes his transition. Meanwhile, the older son is in the field. Meanwhile has not been a good word for the American church. Because what meanwhile has basically meant is we have become very comfortable living very close to the chapel bell when instead we should have been running a mission a yard from the gates of hell. That was the quote from C.T. Studd that we talked about last week. That our job was not to withdraw and to get comfortable, but our job was to do what has happened in these three stories. When there are things that are lost, you go find them. You go to extraordinary means. You do incredible things in order that you might go find these things. And so I've looked at this problem 
the elder brother had. And I've tried to identify it, and I've tried to kind of name it. So go with me here for just a second. The word I've come up with is gracism. Gracism means I deserve to be with the Father, but you don't. Isn't that really what happened with the elder brother? Hey, I've done it right. And gracism starts to look something like this. Let me just kind of describe it for us. I read my Bible every day. I pray. Oh, I go to restaurants and pray. We hold hands around the table and we make sure everybody around us knows we're praying. And we do that on a regular basis. My family helped start this church. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember what it looks like to be a Christian. And I start feeling pretty good about me. Now dig a little deeper. Oh, yeah. I look at porn occasionally. Sure. Doesn't every American male, isn't isn't that what we do? Oh, Yeah, I know I'm pretty envious of my neighbor. In fact, I can't stand to be around him because he drives me crazy because I look at the things that he has and I don't have and I compare my insides with his outsides and I work all this stuff out in my head. Or, oh, look at a line from Greece. By the way, Fox is redoing Greece on January 30th. I'm in front of my television as soon as the night of prayer is over. <laughs> That's a cheap plug for the night of prayer, okay? But it, there is a line in there that says simply, look at me, I'm Sandra D. Pay attention to just how good I am. Look at how my life has turned out. My career's good. My family's good. It's all so good. And I probably need to have rotator cuff surgery because patting myself on the back has caused injury to my shoulder. And I get so caught up in that moment then I become a gracist. See, gracism is not about the color of your skin. Gracism is about the color of your sin. And we sometimes look at some sins being more scarlet than others. In fact, we will sit there and look at the signs. Yes, yes, bless your heart. Come as screwed up as you are. You are certainly screwed up. And you certainly need some place where you can kind of work that out. And, and yes, you do matter to God. He does have pity on people that are kind of like you. And, and, and yes... We, we are going to be, we want you to be like little children, want you to have those attitudes, but we expect you to grow up finally because something needs to happen and your life needs to change. And yes, grace happens here because you certainly are in need of what God needs to do for you. 
I want to take Luke 15 and I want to lay it right next to another passage in Luke 18. Beginning in verse 10, look at these words. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and in in other words, those dark scarlet folks. I am so glad I'm not like them. I, I tithe on a regular basis. I, I fast twice a week. Look at me. I'm Sandra D. Aren't you great? Isn't it great? You got somebody on your team that looks like me. See, here's my problem. We're not that just categorically driven that way, right? But here's what I wonder. Is it easier for us to look at someone else's sin and not deal with my own? The things in my life that I need to wrestle with, work through, figure out what's going on. And then you've got the tax collector. Who says it this way? He wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus parenthetically says... I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those that humble themselves should be exalted. So here's my question. What should the older brother have done? And what should the Pharisee have done? How could this story have changed if they had done something different? What if the older brother, when you came to that point in the story where it said, meanwhile, and he asked the servant what's going on, and the servant says, your brother who's lived riotously has come back home and your father's killed the fatted calf. Instead of going crazy and refusing to go in, what if he had been the one that said, my brother's back? And what if his heart had been like the father's heart? Where he basically said, quick, go get a robe, go get sandals, go get a ring. I'm so glad you've killed the fatted calf. It is time for a party. For that one that is lost has been found. The one who is dead is now alive. What would be different with the Pharisee? If instead of looking at the sin of the tax collector, he starts going, you know what, God? I'm struggling with this. And I'm struggling with this. And I'm struggling with this. And here's here's where it's not working for me. And what happens if his prayer looks just like the tax collectors 
because here's the truth. There's nothing different in them. What if his prayer had been, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think we got to really kind of look at what causes God to rejoice. Because God doesn't rejoice at the fact that we have achieved so much. If you want to see how, what makes God rejoice, look at Luke 15, verse 7. He says, I tell you the same way. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Why is there rejoicing here? Because that's our business. Lost is bad. Found is good. The coin is going to be lost forever. So you do whatever's necessary to go find it. The sheep that has gotten away from the fold is never going to be in the herd again because the enemies are going to take it and kill it. And so you leave the 99 and you go after the one because that's what we're called to go do. And the young boy who finds himself in a pigsty is going to stay there and he is going to be there unless he knows really the truth about his father's heart. That my father, even though I've hurt him this bad, loves me, loves me, loves me. I want to say that's why it's so important that we engage in our job to connect with the world, to go outside our comfort zone. See, for so long, the church has thought its ministry was to invite. Let me invite you into my house so that I can control everything about it as opposed to going into the world into your house. And being salt and light and making the environment better. The world's a messy place, y'all. Ministry is messy. Get over it. Get a mop and help start to clean it up. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are called to be. Mother Teresa said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. But I found the opposite also to be true. If you love people, you have no time to judge them. So let me talk about... One story that happened not too long ago, at least in my world. I'd preached in a church. It was when I was starting Ministries 101. And I, I'd, I'd preached this sermon about what it looks like to go into the world. And that I really do believe that making, being salt and light makes those environments better. And that's what we're called to go do. It's not about us trying to get everybody inside our four walls. It's about us leaving these four walls and going to make a kingdom difference in the worlds in which we serve. Because all of us have our places where we serve. And this gal had kind of waited around to sort of talk to me. And I could tell that 
you know, she had something on her mind. And so she walks up to me and she says, can I have a conversation with you? I said, absolutely. She said, well, it's going to take a few minutes. I said, that's fine. She said, I've got something to tell you that I have never told another person. That's a movement for me. And it causes me to pray a lot because I'm always wondering what's coming next. And what she, after we sat on the front row, what she started telling me, she said, I'm not from here. I'm visiting some friends here. I actually live in Buffalo, New York. And I said, okay. And she said, every day going to work, I pass a home for unwed mothers. And I have this overwhelming desire to go and serve in that home. And I kind of looked at her and went, okay, that's a no-brainer, right? I said, why don't you do it? She said, that's what you don't understand. And this is the part I've never shared with anybody else. When I was 17, my boyfriend and I had a baby out of wedlock, and we were not in a position to take care of that child. At least that's how we rationalized it and dealt with it in our own mind. And she said, I aborted my son. She said, "Twenty at, at age 20, I was in the same circumstance, same guy, same relationship. I was in college at the time. We got pregnant again, and I had a second abortion. She said, after that, that relationship dissolved. He disappeared. I continued on in school. I met the man who is now my husband, who is a wonderful, committed Christian man. We married, and we have two little boys of our own. And I went, okay, does it, does it help for you to know that you're forgiven? And she says, that's not my problem. I, I know God has forgiven me for that. I haven't forgiven myself. And I struggle with it every single day. But she said, if I'm going to go and serve in this place, my husband's going to ask, why is that so important to you? And I'm going to have to tell him this thing that I've never, ever told him before. So here's my question. Were the things you talked about Just good preaching. Or did you mean it? I thought about that a second. And I answered by telling her about Ministries 101. That ministry in prison came because I was a person who had been in prison. And that helping men and women transition back into the community was something that had happened for me, and I wanted it to happen for other people. And then she said, I appreciate that. And I looked at her and I said, here's what I know. God never wastes a hurt. And there is this hurt in your life that God can do something amazing with. But it's risky. And you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. And then I grabbed her hands and I looked at her in the eye and I said, categorically, unabashedly, unashamedly, I say to you, it's worth it. And I prayed for her and she went on her way 
And honestly, I thought that would probably be the last time I heard from her, right? It was several months later when I walked into the office and I had a message. The message had no callback number, and I went and inquired as to why they said they wouldn't leave one, but I wrote the message down word for word. The message said these words. Every Tuesday and Friday evening, I volunteer in an unwed mother's home, teenage mother's home, and I teach computer science. And I want to say to you, unashamedly, unabashedly, and without reservation, it's worth it. As a church, we have been so consumed with bringing people in that we have forgotten our job is to go out and share the message. And we can only do that from a position of there except the grace of God go I. I don't have anything that separates me from anybody else. God have mercy on me. A sinner. And so this morning, I invite you, if you haven't, to connect with this one. This Jesus who went in his life and connected with people that everybody would sit there and scratch his head about and wonder why he was spending time with that person. And he would say things like, it's not the righteous who need the doctor, it's those that are sick. And what he understood, all of us are sick and we all have our needs, right? So, this morning, if you have never accepted him as your Savior, we invite you to do that by confessing your sins, or confessing your Savior, repenting of your sins, and being baptized into him. But as our elder couples gather around the room, as we spend time in prayer this morning, here's what I hope happens. I hope we take a look at these signs again. And I hope we commit as we pray about these things, to go in the world and say, this really is who we are. Won't you come as we stand and sing?